Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 73. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down and talk with a fellow life science teacher about how they got in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. In this episode, I sit down with Jamie Castle. Jamie is a biology and chemistry teacher at the Pennsylvania Leadership Charter School in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Jamie teaches AP Biology, Honors Chemistry, and Honors Human Anatomy and Physiology in the University Scholars Program, a blended learning program for high-achieving and academically motivated students in grades 6 through 12. Jamie's educational philosophy focuses on using active learning strategies to help students build their understanding of the practices and concepts of science. In addition to her work as a teacher, she is currently enrolled in a bio- biotechnology graduate program at John Hopkins. Jamie earned her bachelor's of science in human physiology from Boston University and her master's of arts in science education from Adelphi University. You can follow Jamie on Twitter at Jamie N. Castle. Welcome, Jamie. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, normally I clean up a lot of my mistakes in the beginning. I think there's, this is going to be a laughter-filled intro to start. <laughs> So uh, as I as I said, you can clearly tell we are we've reached uh, very near the end of the school year. I don't know how, I don't know how many more days you have left, Jamie. Uh, we are actually we're finished after I leave for the read. So mm. our last day for students is the eleventh. Okay. So I'll actually be leaving a day early, but yeah, we've got like another two weeks left. Yeah. Yeah, and so this is going to come out uh, while we're wrapping up the reads or the end. And so uh, when we this will come out on the Sunday, we, I think, have one more day of read. I fly back the following day, and then our last day of school at my school is the 19th. Oh, okay. Because uh, so, we start pretty late. Um, mm-hmm. We don't usually start until September, but uh-huh. we usually start after Labor Day. Um, yeah, same with us, yeah. And so, and we, uh, we have a lot of breaks and a lot of, you know, choppiness and stuff like that. And we didn't have too many snow days this year, but um, between professional days and other things, yeah, we're, we're really late. My boys end up getting out the 14th this year, I think, um, at home. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, we'll be missing, I'm missing basically finals week. um, Okay. So it's not a big deal. And I get to come back for the last day of school to say, here's your grades. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for, for a little half day so yeah yeah so how's the how's the year been going how's the the wrap-up feel uh it feels good it feels good uh, we very much at usp uh we wind down kind of after ap exams because so many of our courses are ap courses so um we've sort of been in the slow decline um since you know earlier in may um mm-hmm. so now we're sort of just um <clears throat> over the next couple of weeks, sort of wrapping things up. I'm pretty much done with any assignments, anything graded in both AP Bio and Anatomy and Physiology, because I have seniors, and mm-hmm. so they end a little bit earlier. Um, and so I'm just finishing up in the coming week with Honors Chem. They're going to take their last exam. And then we have a high school trip the first week of June, so we won't have classes for high school students. And then they'll just come back for those last two days of school, um, just sort of to celebrate that the year is over. Mm-hmm. And and then they'll be off to the, their summer vacation. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. My, uh, yeah, I have a similar deal with my APs. Um, my, our seniors are actually starting their senior finals here in the last week of May. 
so I am actually done with mine, similar to you. Um, I don't really have a lot going on with them. Uh, we have a couple of projects we wrap up, um, and then I use my juniors as my guinea pigs to try out new labs and new activities. <laughs> so I actually have a um, two weeks of things that I've been putting aside and building, and, and I want to get feedback from them on ideas to build forward. Um, it's been actually been really useful for me the last few years using this time to to having them R&D stuff for me and give yeah. me feedback. Um, but yeah, in terms of an academic load, it's only in the classroom. It's nothing outside, no more mm -hmm. graded work. Um, I have a couple of kids who are looking at possibly putting out their lab that they put together. They do sort of a capstone lab in AP for us. And um, there's a the Journal of Emerging Investigators, mm -hmm. um, which is very, we have formatted our group lab report to be very much like their submission format okay. so I, and I told students well if you feel like you really are proud of your capstone and you'd like to work on publication I'll help you set it up for submission and I have probably three of my 10 groups are like yeah that'd be cool to try to do so these are juniors again trying to look towards publication yeah um, that's awesome but, yeah but otherwise it's yeah it's pretty laid back in that class and then for my alternative program kids they take the state exam which will be in about a week um, so they're in there wrapping up their state exam and for them, same deal. Once, as soon as they're done that, I don't do a final with them where the, the state tests are, um, I think in this case, it's less than a week between the finishing of the state test and their last day of class. So, um, <laughs> they're, they're done on the state testing days and then my honors bio kids. Yeah. They're in a similar boat. They do have a final, um, but uh, somebody else will be giving it to them uh, oh. <laughs> and grading it for me. So, uh, it'll be nice. Good, but, <laughs> It's not a big deal. It's just an, it's an all multiple choice sort of um, we that course is always sort of historically aligned to the SAT biology exam. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so those kids are most of those kids next weekend will be taking the SAT biology exam and then they oh. take our final like two weeks afterwards. Okay. Um, so it's they study for this thing and then two weeks later they more or less take a very similar exam in class for credit. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, it's, they tend to, well, they tend to be one of two categories. They either do really well on it because they've studied for it twice or they take it once and then completely check out and, uh, and coast in through the exam. <laughs> and I do want to shift and get into the question um, that I like to ask, start with everybody, which is uh, about you and how yeah. you became a science teacher. So what led you into the classroom? What led you to become a science teacher? Okay. So uh, this is actually kind of interesting. I became a science teacher and then I was not a science teacher and then I went back to science teaching. So this will be a, a little different than a lot of the other people who have told you this story on past <laughs> episodes. Um, but um, I... Went to college, interested in a ton of different things. I didn't know what I wanted to major in. I, I actually was leaning more toward music, but was too chicken to actually do any auditions before I went to college. I just had major imposter syndrome. And and so um, I actually started college undecided. Um, and I went to BU, which was awesome because I had like a gigantic menu of options for when I finally mm -hmm. did decide what I wanted to do. But I started undecided. I tried a bunch of different classes. And I realized about after, after about a year, I would say that I wanted to study health science. So I transferred into Sargent College. Mm -hmm. I was studying occupational therapy, um, and I really enjoyed all my classes, but when it came time to start choosing our fieldwork rotations, I felt like my advisor was pushing me to work with specific patient populations that I wasn't super interested in. Mm. I really wanted to work with physical dysfunction, spinal cord injury, patients who were recovering from you know, traumas and things like that. That's a fairly small niche within occupational therapy, and so I mm -hmm. think my advisor was probably just trying to get me to think larger just in case you know that particular path didn't work out for me but you know I was 
20 and very, you know, single-minded. And I got frustrated and I said, well, if I'm not going to be able to do this, this very specific thing, then maybe I should start thinking about something else. So I, I, I looked at the different classes that, that I had taken and I realized, well, I really enjoyed gross human anatomy, neuroanatomy and physiology, exercise physiology, physical dysfunction. So I said, okay, I'm going to switch to human physiology and sort of take the next couple of years to figure out exactly what I want to do. So I graduated. Um, I was thinking about maybe medical school. I was thinking about possibly doing law school and going into like health law, um, but it wasn't making any moves because I knew that I hadn't really settled on something that I felt 100% sure about. And so I had worked, I started working for a learning center um, and I also worked part-time for the international competition of collegiate acapella, like the competition from the movie what is it? Pitch Perfect. It's a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I had competed in it in college with my acapella group. And then I started working for them. And, and I also applied to the nursing program, like the second bachelor's program in nursing at NYU. I had gotten in, but I still wasn't a hundred percent sure. So I deferred on that. And then, and then I finally said, okay, I, I really need to make a decision. I can't just keep floating. And so I looked back at the things that I really enjoyed doing most. And I realized that working with students through ICCA, working with the kids that I was working with at the Learning Center, I was a peer counselor in college, and I loved working with the freshmen as an upperclassman, and also directing my acapella group in college. I was like, okay, I, I really like being in sort of a mentor-type role and working with other people, so I should really consider teaching. And I had mm. this whole you know, background in science, and so I said, you know what, science science teacher. That's what I'm going to do. So I applied to the uh, master's program at Adelphi. I got in mm -hmm. and they were just starting a new program that involved interning at a school for an entire year rather than just doing a one semester student teaching rotation. And I was like, well, that sounds great. So I applied, I got in. Um, and as soon as I walked in and started working with the students at that school, I was like, I made the right decision. And so I was, I was so happy. I did my intern year at um, the Queens High School of Teaching in Belrose, New York. It was an incredible experience. I was fortunate enough to get hired there. I did my mm -hmm. first year of teaching there. Um, but it, then I ended up having to move to Pennsylvania. So um, I left very reluctantly and came to Pennsylvania. And it was really, really hard to find a job. The teaching market in Pennsylvania at that time was incredibly challenging. And even more so because I was an applicant that was prepared out of state. So, oh, yeah. yeah, Pennsylvania has a ton of teaching colleges. They were graduating so many new teachers. And so they're going to set up their system so that their in-state prepared graduates, you know, are going to have an easier time finding a job. I totally get that. So, so it was a little harder for me. I was only able to find a long-term sub position in physical science and ESL earth science, which were definitely outside my area of expertise at that point. Um, yeah. And they wanted me to take a composition course. Um, in order to get my teaching license. And I was like, well, I place out of composition in college and I really don't want to take composition just to get my teaching license. And so I started looking at that point just for maybe like a temporary job that I could work outside of teaching just to figure out what I was going to do. And also if I had to get that composition course in, I would need time to do that. So um, I ended up working as a product manager in the medical device industry. And so basically I was responsible for running the business of a certain product line. So I worked on cerebrovascular implants, basically aneurysm clips and other implants that are left in the brain after neurosurgery. And I worked in that industry for about six years. I did make a transition at one point 
um, during that time from cerebrovascular implants to spinal implants. But the money was fantastic. I got to travel to Germany a few times. I spent a lot of time in the operating room watching surgery, which was so cool. And I spent a lot of time talking to surgeons about their work. So it was very interesting. But at no point in that time did I stop missing teaching. And so I finally said, all right, I have to go back. And so I took a new job as a curriculum manager at a private cyber school. So this was my first introduction really to the cyber school environment. I hadn't really, you know, Mm -hmm. known much about it prior. And that gave me a lot of insight into the kinds of decisions that administrators have to make um, in order to keep a school running. Um, I've got to get my hands on curriculum and help make sure that that was running properly. The school that I worked at had two sort of paths for students. Um, they either had like a text-based set of courses that were ultimately students working with a textbook and a teacher setting a pace for them and then grading the assignments. And then mm -hmm. there was also a more, tra I don't want to say traditional, but more what you would think of when you think of like a cyber curriculum, like prepackaged lessons, they were made by an outside company. Um, and we delivered those to students depending on their preferences. And so my work really was in reviewing all the courses, making sure everything made sense, that everything operated the way it was supposed to, that the content was accurate, that everything was grammatically correct and all that. But it was still adjacent to teaching and not quite in it. So that was what finally made me say, I have to get my license. I have to get back in a classroom. I so miss working with students. And so I did. And then in 2014, I started working at PA Leadership Charter School. I worked uh, specifically on the cyber side for about half a school year. And then I moved over to where I am now at University Scholars, which is blended. So I do see students on site and I am happier than I've ever been. So oh. kind of a long path, but it got <laughs> me to where I needed to be. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm curious about that first cyber school you were at because it, I mean, it sounded like it was, it was using online technology for students to access curriculum, but it doesn't sound like it was really using a lot of the power of, of technology. <laughs> uh, I would agree with that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Beyond, it was like, it was sort of a core, an online correspondence course as opposed to really an integrative online course. That is exactly what it was. And, yeah. and, you know, I'll openly admit I had a lot of questions about whether or not that was an appropriate model. But being a private school, there were a lot of families that were basically just looking for a way for their kids to get a high school diploma. Mm -hmm. Their priorities were elsewhere in athletics, in the performance arts, that kind of thing. Education was maybe something they knew that their child needed to finish, but they weren't necessarily looking for the best educational experience. And so this, this program fit what those families were looking for. And yeah, from a teacher standpoint, I definitely had a lot of questions about the model, but it was a model that people kept paying for and that was lucrative for the company. And so it, you know, it continues, it still exists. So. Yeah. I may come back to this cause I'm, uh, I had built a an online tutorial for my alternative program kids really over the last, you know, 10 years or so to get them to help help them pass our state exam. Um, and these are usually students who have had disruptive education. Sometimes they come into my class and they're added in like March, um, mm -hmm. but still need to pass the state exam at the end of the year. Um, so I built a an online module or series of modules that were 
uh, you know, mastery based. Um, mm-hmm. And so students would work their way through lessons. And if they got something wrong, they would get kicked back to where the content was and then it would shuffle the answers on them and they'd have to get them again. So there's a lot of repetition mm-hmm. um, and it's very content focused and it does the job for what they needed to do to pass the state exam. But as we move into an NGSS model and an NGSS-like state assessment, I am totally aware, I've been aware of the shortcomings of this module for a while, mm-hmm. but there was very little incentive to change it. And now with the NGSS type assessments coming along, they're going to need to be able to engage in science practices in a more authentic way mm-hmm. and look at models and, and ask questions and do different things like that. And um, it's now, you know, you can look at this in a positive or negative light, I've been looking at it as an opportunity to revamp these tools. Um, and some of the people are like, oh no, this thing is going away because it works. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, yeah, but it's pretty static and it's pretty stale. And it's it's it checks a box, sort of like what you're saying. Like people yeah. who are like, yeah, we need to check this box and get this thing done, but it's not great science. Um, yes. it's, it's good content delivery and it's effective content delivery, but it's not great in terms of engaging kids in practices of science. So, uh, I think this is a natural place to shift over and talk about your, your cyber school that you teach in and like, mm-hmm. how does that work? What are the logistics <laughs> of working in an online school or a blended program? And then, you know, we could talk a little bit about advantages and challenges of working in this compared to say a traditional school, which you have, do have a little bit of experience with. Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, PA Leadership Charter School, which I'm just going to call PALCS going forward because it's okay. kind of a mouthful. <laughs> uh, PALCS has has five sort of schools within a school or five distinct programs that fall under the PALCS umbrella. So they have three all cyber programs, an elementary school for grades K through five, a middle school for six through eight, and a high school for nine through 12. And then they also have two blended programs, uh, the University Scholars Program, which is the one that I work for. Um, and that is designed for gifted kids, high achieving kids, highly motivated kids, and then also the Center for Performing Arts, which specializes in music and acting and um, dance. And I believe they have a graphic arts component as well. So that's a, an intensive for kids that are really into the arts. Um, they all operate a little bit differently. Um, I worked for about six months on the all cyber side. Um, so I can speak a little bit about how that model works, but I definitely know much more about USP because I've been there now for four years. So the all cyber side um, is what it sounds like. The students don't come on site. They work on their courses on the computer from home. Students live throughout the state of Pennsylvania, but all of the courses at Palks are created by the teachers. So we are not simply conduits for or facilitators of courses that somebody else wrote. Um, The teachers are creating all the content. They're working with the standards and figuring out how they're going to help students achieve their learning objectives in a virtual environment. For science, that looks a lot like virtual labs. Instead of actually doing a lab, maybe it's presenting data and then talking about the data and doing analysis of the data sort of on the back end and maybe having the students watch a video of what the lab might look like. But of course, the the doing of the lab is a little bit of a challenge. My colleague, uh, Brittany King, teaches AP Biology on the all cyber side. She actually has students um, buy some materials and there are some labs that they will perform at home with her in a, like in a virtual classroom. So they Mm -hmm. do get some lab experience, but you know, they're not, they're certainly not be, they're not going to be doing PCR and uh, bacterial transformation at home. Um, But they do do some hands-on. And then there is a 
weekly or bi-weekly discussion component. So students do have to meet with their teachers once or twice a week live simultaneously, but otherwise they have the flexibility to work on their courses when their schedule allows. So we certainly do have some students who are homebound, and so they take their courses at home because they can't get to their school either for um, medical reasons or because they live very far, maybe from the local school and transportation is an issue. Uh, we also have students who are athletes, and so they can't attend school in a traditional schedule. So they do their classes at night, let's say, instead of doing them during the day. Or uh, we have some students who study at like Juilliard two or three times a week, and so they'll do their classwork in between that schedule. So the cyber program delivers flexibility, but also because there are some required live meetings with teachers, there is accountability, there is interaction with teachers. So there is some of that relationship building that happens that you would not get in the model that I was discussing previously, where like you said, it was almost like an online correspondence course. Mm. In the blended program that I work in, we see students two to three times a week. So high school students are on site every Monday and Wednesday and then alternating Fridays. We have students in middle school on site Tuesday, Thursday and alternating Fridays. Okay. So they're, they're with us um, and then we give them work to work on on their off days. So um, the challenge for teaching a course like AP Biology is that I don't have as much on site time as teachers who see their students every day. So I need to make the most of those cyber assignments and the students really need to be motivated to do that work on their own, um, which is why this model works really well for highly motivated kids. Um, yeah. And that's why we're not doing a blended model for, you know, just for, for every student, because you really need to have that that, that drive and that enjoyment of learning to get you up in the morning and to do essentially a full day's worth of, of school, but at home on your own on those alternating days. Wow. That's, it's funny. It sounds like you're, um, so I'll tell you about my schedule starting next year is I am, I teach AP biology every single day. We all have a drop schedule. So it's six out of seven days and I will have lab every other day with students. Okay. So your meeting schedule is like my lab meeting schedule. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, my class time is like your cyber time. Uh, if you, if you think about it that way, like mm -hmm. in terms of like, as you were describing it, I was like, Oh, it'd be like if I didn't meet my class and instead I had to come up with the stuff that they had to do in between lab meetings or to run parallel to my lab meetings. Not suggesting that all of your time in your classroom would be lab, but I would imagine in AP Biology, it will be heavily geared that way because that's something that you'd want to harness the power of having them right in front of you. But uh, is that is that fair or what do you do when you have them every other day or five days out of two weeks? I do as much hands-on and lab work as possible. Yeah. So I, I tell them at the beginning of the year, and I have to run all my classes this way, not just AP Bio. Um, I do this with Honors Chem and with Honors Human Anatomy and Physiology as well. I tell them up front, guys, you're, we're not going to get to talk about a lot of what you do on the cyber days in class. Don't come in expecting me to just review everything that you did the day before. I need you to be ready to just apply, discuss, you know, do a lab based on what you learned the day prior. Now, that's not to say that I'm not available to support them. Or if the whole class comes in and says, we are so confused by what, what we worked on yesterday. Can we please talk about it? I'll, I'll, of course, always make time for that. But for the majority of the time, I plan my on-site classes so that we are doing 
as, as much science as possible, because like you said, I, I, I have such a limited amount of time with them that I want to maximize the value of it. So, yeah. And we, we do have a lab period, but it's only once every other week. So I see my students on Mondays and Wednesdays for an hour. And then the alternating Fridays, I see them for, well, just AP bio. I see them for two hours. So a lot of times the longer labs, I have to strategically plan for them to occur on one of those alternating Fridays. Other labs we can do in an hour and that's no problem, but it it does. It it takes a little bit of extra sort of finagling of the uh, instructional schedule just to make sure that we can do things in a logical order and also when the schedule allows for us to do them. Yeah, I would imagine that's probably the largest challenge as I've been thinking about how my how my schedules go. You have to teach so much about materials and methods. So like yes. when they walk in and, you know, I often refer to my students as they don't know how to do anything. Um, and mm-hmm. I mean that in the like most earnest sense. It's not their fault. They like, but they don't know how to measure things. Or even if they read the instructions, you don't know how you measure something until you've actually done it. Um, so there's yeah. so much skill building that if you want them to ask their own questions or design their lab, they have to immerse themselves in the experience. So I could envision that if you wanted them to do a baseline lab and a follow-up lab, if you really want them engaging in you know, the asking questions or the analyzing data, you have to strategically set that up over multiple days um, in order for them to achieve those things. Yes. Yes. And my first few years, I really struggled with particularly the kinds of labs that were designed not necessarily to be done in one period, but where you expect the students will come back the next day. Those have been a challenge. So like um, the the potato lab, the diffusion lab Mm -hmm. um, that everyone talks about gets so smelly. So you need to do it two days in a row. Otherwise, your classroom is going to smell terrible. I, I have to not do that lab because usually when we have lab time, it's a Friday and we're not coming back until Monday and that would be disastrous. So, so I have to be careful about what labs I choose. Um, sometimes I have to choose something that's maybe a little bit different, um, than the lab that everybody does. But yeah, as far as the, the skills go, I do try to do a lot of lab work in chemistry and get students exposed to, like you said, the, the, just the skills of measuring and transferring liquids and things like that so that they're really comfortable with that coming out of honors chem because in our program that's the last specifically required science that they have to take they still need to take more credits in science but after that they have a choice they can take ap bio they can take apes they can take ap chem they can take honors physics they can take honors astronomy so I, because I have those students the last time that I know they're all getting the same class, I try and build as many of those skills into that class as possible so that when I get kids in AP Bio the next year or when my colleague gets them in AP Chem and so on and so forth, I know that they at least have a baseline. And so at the AP level, we're, we're spending minimal time teaching skills compared to actually doing the work. And like you said, asking the questions and designing the procedures and that kind of thing. So not to totally sidetrack us, but to do the potato lab, I would do it on a Monday. And then after 24 hours, I would take them, put them on a tray and put them in the fridge um, and then have them Ah. assess it on Wednesday. Um, Okay. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I I couldn't or do it on the Wednesday and have them measured on Friday, but like you can totally do that lab. So, but just after 24 hours, if you put them in the fridge, it will slow down. You can also have them have the conversation about like 
how does throwing them in the fridge change the rate of diffusion? How would it have been okay. different if you had done that? Uh, because the diff whole diffusion takes about, I think it's like eight hours I've done it, beginning of the day, end of the day um, on that lab. So if you threw them in the fridge after, you know, the next day, it probably yeah. wouldn't be too smelly. Okay. And you still get, would get that change in mass, so. Okay. I will have to try that. Yeah, because I've read so many threads on the uh, AP Bio Facebook group about the smell. And so I just kind of right away was like, well, I'm not doing this yeah. because I teach so many other classes in my room that yeah. forget it. They, the, all the <laughs> other classes would be off track the whole day because of the smell. So. Yeah. I, I personally have never uh, – now our AP Bio room is kind of smelly just in general because <laughs> we have a lot of critters and stuff like that. And so like it's hard to – it's hard to get past that, but in general, I don't find the smell to be the bigger issue for us. I find the um, the potatoes degrade to the oh, point yeah. where you can't get a good massing if you let them go. So for me, at 24 hours to 48 hours tends to be fine. Um, so okay. I bet you if you set it up on Monday and measured them on Wednesday, you'd probably be okay. But okay. Um, for the extremes, uh, I think particularly the the like the water and then the really high sucrose concentration one mm -hmm. on those ends, the potatoes start to break down Yeah. Um, after, okay. after a couple of days. And so I feel like when we've left them over the weekend, that was the issue is that the potato degraded to the point where like it was hard to figure out the mass because of the degradation of the, of the potato. Um, right. And then when, if you do it as a like design your own lab kind of situation where the kids do the setup, the, the thing that we would find is that some things like apples, like apples is a really common one for them to do a core of and, and see how the mass changes for that. Those break down really fast. Okay. So, so something not quite as firm as a potato breaks down really fast. So, um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, not to totally sidetrack us, but like, as soon as you, like, this is my problem. This is the way my brain works. When you say I have a hard time running a lab, my brain goes to, I want to solve that problem because i want to know how to do this lab um <laughs> my own personal i appreciate flaws. the advice though yeah i'm gonna have to try that this year yeah. this well, next year <laughs> i want to now do that like that's not, like now i want it because next year i have these are and the other reason that it comes to my mind is that that thing that you've just said is the exact logistics that i'm trying to figure out how right. to do basically this year i meet with my kids every day and then once every six days we have a double lab period Okay. So that's, a, and now I'm teaching lab as a totally separate class that needs mm. to have its own category and own grade. And I actually will have kids who aren't in the same like bio class will be in different labs um, because oh. the labs are going to be independent because of how our schedule works. So basically, yeah, we have, what do we have? Five sections of AP biology next year and we have six sections of lab. But if you're in a period AP biology, you may or may not be in B period lab. You might be in like H period lab. Right. Like it's, and so it's going to be crazy. And I'm teaching more of the lab sections and my colleague is teaching more of the, the class sections to get them wow. all balanced in there. So they have to run as totally independent courses, but there's two separate things I'm, I'm struggling with. One is the, how do you make this work as its own independent class and disentangling the grades? Cause yeah. I don't, like and we up to this point we don't really make much difference between the lab and the class like we just would do things as they came up yeah. and so if we needed a class period to run a lab we'd run a lab or we need 20 minutes of a class to run a lab we run a lab and now we have to run the labs sort of in those lab periods or at least we think we do um we don't really know um so we're we're <laughs> we have to, we haven't experienced this schedule yet so we don't know what it looks yeah. like so we're thinking about what that's going to feel like uh, next year. But also, just as you were saying, there's going to be many days where we're going to see our kids and then we're not going to see them the next day for lab, but we'll see them the day after. And so 
labs like that one, um, I do a yeast respiration lab, which is pretty much based off of them setting up little um, like yeast solutions and then seeing how high the foam st- stand is the next day. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's going to work over 48 hours. Like I think yeah. I don't I think that the foam stand is going to drop and not only will it drop, you won't even be able to see how high that foam stand went if you let it go for an additional 24 hours. I think it's going to drop all the way down. So that lab may not mm-hmm. work at all in in that setup. So I yeah. I'm starting to look at labs that we run right now where having multiple days in between is going to be really messy Mm -hmm. um, in terms of data collection and having a coherent sort of understanding of the lab. So as soon as you went there, like immediately my brain started (laughs) rolling into my own, (laughs) my own problems. (laughs) Yeah. 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 The things that are happening with school schedules now are so varied. It's it's unbelievable. You can take five different teachers and they'll all have a completely different schedule. And it's I think it's awesome that schools are thinking creatively about how to structure schedules. But yeah, sometimes, especially as a science teacher who has to teach a lab, those creative schedules can really be a logistical challenge for sure. Yeah. Well, and yeah. I think that for us, I mean, I, I as I said, I try to frame things more as like, what are the opportunities here? Um, and from an opportunity standpoint, I'm gaining so much more lab time this upcoming yes. year. And so I just need to be able to not get bogged down by the the potential losses and instead frame mm-hmm. it around the, look at these opportunities. What can we now do that we have been hemmed in in our old schedule that we couldn't oh, do? Yeah. And um, and I really do think there's a going to be a lot of opportunities there um, in terms of really that time to like analyze data in the class, for example. Um, mm-hmm. Like I think a lot of times I rush through stuff because our periods are so short. And But now I have like the class time. I don't have to take class time to do that. We're, we'll just meet in the lab. And so from yeah. one lab to the next lab, I can really let the kids flush out like, all right, look at your data. You know, we, we went over this theoretical idea of water potential in here, but like, let's really dive into what's going on with the water potential in this potato lab. And let's talk about where's the sucrose level and where's the water moving. And let's look at that water potential. How does the water potential underlying concept really drive what you're seeing in this data that you're getting? Mm-hmm. And I can see that as a huge opportunity of having that extra time where we can really meld those concepts into their, their lab. And it doesn't feel like we're rushing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, at least that's, yeah, that's, awesome. that's my hope. So, but, yeah. but I do want to come back to this idea about biology and chemistry because I often complain to my chemistry teachers, although I will have to give them hundred percent credit. They are now having students make solutions in class for years. Our honors curriculum was so packed with content that they would have all the solutions prepped for them. And the kids would come in and they'd run the experiments and they were just like barreling through content, content, content. That's sort of the old way. So when I started teaching AP biology, I would get these AP biology students and I'd be like, all right, let's make a solution. And they were like, how do I make a solution? And so they're like putting powders into graduated cylinders. And I'm like, that is not how we do this. Uh, (laughs) uh, So I can totally see the advantage of having these kids in chemistry and biology, but how do you feel that teaching both chemistry and biology has sort of impacted your teaching, you know, and what are the sort of themes that run through those two different courses for you? So it's funny because I, I volunteered to teach chemistry when we were in a pinch. Mm -hmm. And so this wasn't something that I really had thought about for a long period of time. I sort of jumped in. We were try our previous chemistry teacher had left. Um, 
and we were looking for a new chemistry teacher and we just weren't finding the right candidate, but we had gotten a couple of good biology resumes. And so I said, you know what, I'll teach chem and we can just hire another bio teacher to take over honors bio for me. And so that's what we did. And so the, the first few months of teaching chemistry was just a whirlwind because it was like, okay, well now I need to relearn all of this <laughs> chemistry that I haven't thought about in this level of depth in quite some time. But once I got a few months in, I was like, wait a minute, this is making me a better biology teacher. Like this was the smartest decision I could possibly have made. And so I'm so glad I did it. it chemistry makes my bio teaching stronger. Teaching biology makes me, I think in some ways, a stronger chemistry teacher. So the two really, like you said, have these common themes that run through. I see a lot of commonalities between the two classes in terms of emergent properties. Mm -hmm. um, I see a lot of thermodynamics across the two courses, and I see a lot of connections with equilibrium. So, I mean, even just in anatomy and physiology, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the bicarbonate buffer system mm -hmm. in the blood. We were getting to the end of the respiratory system and we were talking about it and the kids were all looking at me kind of funny. And I was just like, guys, Le Chatelier's principle, come on. And they, like it clicked for them and they were all like, oh, right. So I love being able to pull things in that I would never think to pull in if I had been solely focused on bio. And then when I'm in chem and we're talking about like redox reactions, yeah. I can pull in photosynthesis and cellular respiration and they all perk up because they remember that from honors bio. So it, it really, I, I love that it enables me to make connections across classes for the students. Cause I, I see in their faces that, that they're, they're grabbing the big ideas then that connect biology and chemistry rather than getting themselves sort of mired in the details um, because that's, that's, I feel like sometimes where they confuse themselves, they start overthinking, they get way too focused on something small. And it's like, no guys, we need to zoom back out and look at this as a big idea. And I think teaching both biology and chemistry enables me to do that better than if I was just focused on one or the other. I'm going to ask you to dive a little bit more into what you mean by emergent properties. Um, sure. what does that mean to you? Yeah. So the idea that, um, that a larger entity mm -hmm. that has certain characteristics is made up of numerous smaller entities that have very different characteristics. So for example, a molecule of water has the properties of water, but the individual atoms of hydrogen and oxygen have completely different properties when separated from a molecule of water. Um, same idea with a cell. You have a cell that functions in a certain way and you can have a different kind of cell, a muscle cell, a neuron, a, a skin cell, so on and so forth. Those function as a cell unit in one way, but then when you pull out the organelles and you look at a mitochondria or a ribosome or uh, the endoplasmic reticulum, those have completely different properties that are not shared with the entire unit of the cell. So to me, I see that as two, as one common theme that we see in both chemistry and biology. Oh, that's neat. I, I never framed it that way. The redox and thermo are the obvious ones to me mm -hmm. from teaching. And I, I did teach, I have a minor in chemistry and I taught chemistry for many years early on. And now, you know, teaching AP biology, I see there's grand themes that we come back to that they saw in chemistry. They always laugh when I bring up redox. There's always a handful of kids who are like, uh, redox. <laughs> Uh, do we have to balance the equations? I was like, no, you have to understand the broad concepts. And they're like, okay, yeah. great. What are the broad concepts? Um, like they've, they could balance the equations better than they can tell you the broad concepts. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I've, I had very much a force for the trees. You know, you use the word big idea several times. And I think that it is useful to be able to bring in those, those big overarching concepts to kids. Um, I often have, have kids 
when I do redox with them in AP biology, when we do, you know, photosynthesis cell respiration, they're like, well, why didn't we learn redox this way? Um, <laughs> like in context. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of the other way around. You sort of have to under have an understanding of redox before yeah. you can look at photosynthesis in this way. Like, there's a reason why in honors biology, it's like a lot of hand waving. Like it's yes. <laughs> a lot of make believe, like don't pay any attention. Kids, every once in a while I get a kid in honors bio who asks a question. I was like, well, that's a great question. You really don't want me to explain the answer right now because uh, we don't have the next like two hours for me to explain the underlying concept of the underlying concept. And I was like, this is, yeah. but I tell him like, this is an excellent question. And I would say there's deep un there's deeper chemistry to this that we're not going to get into. You will learn that foundation next year. When you take ebiology right. in two years, we'll, we'll bring those two together. And yeah. some kids are okay with that. Others are like, uh, why aren't you telling us? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, that's, that's, that's really cool. And I, the immersion properties, that's a new one for me. I, I, I like that. I have to think about, <laughs> think about how framing that. That was the one thing that, as you were saying, I was like, wait a minute, I, I don't know what I, I know what that, what that means, but uh, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it, emergent properties was an idea that, I had not thought of using that terminology mm -hmm. until I started teaching AP bio and I was going through some of David Kanufke's materials mm -hmm. and he brings up that term repeatedly. And I'm like, huh. And so then once I started teaching chemistry, you know, I saw the parallels. And so when you asked me about, you know, the themes in the show notes, that was actually the first one I came up with. Yeah. And then I thought about thermo and redox and all that. So it's interesting how every teacher sort of, you know, it's the same content, but we all think about it really differently. Well, that'll be embarrassing. Knufke is now listening to this because he's one of the few <laughs> people who listens to it early and he's going <laughs> to send me a message because uh, David's been great. David and I actually been uh, emailing quite a bit the last few weeks. I've been asking him some questions and he's been asking me some questions. So uh, that's great. I, I, for some reason, in all of the time I've gone through David's stuff, I have, that has not popped out for me. So I, I really appreciate you making me aware of that because that's, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, in the spirit of that same idea, one of the really interesting things I find about you, particularly on your Twitter, is that you're <laughs> often talking about really your different worlds, your chemistry teaching, your biology teaching, but also your master's in biotechnology program. And I might be one of the few people who, I don't know, is like earlier in the year, you were talking about taking a biostats course and like you... <laughs> You were taking, you had to download R and you were, oh like, and you were like, oh goodness, oh goodness. And I'm like, oh cool. I want to know what that's like because I am one of the few people who like, when I read, I read all these articles on the you know, bioinformatics and I do a lot of stuff with micro and a lot of stuff with molecular. And like, you really like, it's got to the point where if you don't understand R, then mm -hmm. you can't read some of these articles because they are using this to do their analysis of this. But um, so you've definitely got yourself out of your comfort zone taking yeah. these courses in there. <laughs> so how is how has life been balancing this master's of biotechnology and full time teaching? Um, so from the time management standpoint, it has not been easy. <laughs> um, I haven't been sleeping as much as I should, uh, but. Um, otherwise I, I'm so glad I did it. Um, one of the, one of the challenging things about working at USP with it in a homogeneous gifted, high achieving environment is that these kids are, are so intense. And I mean that in the best way possible. They're just, they're psyched to be at school. They want to learn and they want to know as much as possible about everything. Mm -hmm. And they, they ask so many questions and quite often the questions are, why is this? Why is that? So after teaching at USP for like a year, I was like, I need to know more. 
I need to know more science. And I went to college in the late 90s, very early 2000s. And there's been so much progress in biology since then, particularly, you know, in molecular and cell biology. So I was like, I need to I need to learn more of this so that I can answer these questions that my students are asking me. And so I found the program at Hopkins and it's been awesome. But yeah, I, I very much did push myself outside my comfort zone. That class in biostatistics was kind of a bear. I took it last summer and um, my professor was awesome about discussing the actual biostatistics part, but we were very much left on our own to sort of figure out R and that was really overwhelming. But I was really proud of myself at the end of the semester when, you know, I had figured it out and, and I could get around pretty comfortably, at least doing very basic things yeah. um, in the program. But I love that I'm able to model lifelong learning for my students. You know, I want them to see that you don't have to stop learning when you're done in school. Um, and, you know, my ability to sort of go down those rabbit holes where my students ask those why questions um, has been great. I had a student in AP Bio ask this year, well, why ATP? Like, why not CTP or mm -hmm. TTP? And I was like, it's really funny you asked that because we literally had a conversation about that in my grad class. I'm going to go look up what we said. And I came back to class the next time and I was like, these were the key points from our discussion. And I was so happy to be able to do that for her because so many of my students tell me that at their prior schools, when they were asking those deeper questions, they would sort of get like waved away. Like, Oh, we don't have time for that. Mm. So I love that, that I'm able to sort of feed that hunger that they have for those larger questions that, you know, quite honestly, sometimes it is, it's really difficult to sort of entertain those tangents when the class itself is already so full of other things. So yeah. Yeah. And well, and you have probably had a big conversation about how like, well, it's not all ATP. There's a lot of GTP in there too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> but we, yep. we just simplify that. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. um, does it, has it like, one of the things I have found from my own experience of, of doing some, you know, continued learning and balancing like meeting deadlines and other things like that is I feel like it's provided me a lot of empathy for my students when they're asking for uh, more time or to reschedule or, you know, to they, they're they're looking for some flexibility in their calendar because they have to balance other things. Has that been helpful from a like a student empathy and responsibility standpoint? Or is that something that's already sort of baked into the culture of the program that you're working in that's it's already flexible in its very nature? So we're already pretty flexible, but but it's being a graduate student while teaching has definitely given me more empathy toward that. So whereas before, if a student needed a little extra time, I would say, yeah, sure, we can work, you know, we can, we can work with you. I, I, we can figure something out. Now I, I understand more where they're coming from. Mm. So I'm still just as flexible, but now it's like, oh God, I, I totally sympathize with, you know, <laughs> with where you're at. And so the one thing that has really sort of, crystallized for me from doing this program because I'm doing the program online you know I'm I'm not close enough to Baltimore to be going and taking the classes on site so I am very much doing what my students are doing in that I'm being a cyber student mm -hmm. and so that's a that's a, an experience I had never had before I had always just you know gone to school where it, <laughs> I, I was in a brick and mortar environment so seeing myself as a cyber student and seeing what works for me as a learner has helped me restructure some of the things in my courses namely my exams. So in honors chemistry, and 
well, in all of my classes, like we talked about before, I'm really challenged for time in terms of when I get to see my students on site. And so I don't want to give up on-site time for anything, including tests. So I give my students their tests on cyber days. Um, and, and I allow them to use notes and resources because I know that they're going to anyway. Mm. And I think before I started doing this graduate program, I would have been a lot more uncomfortable with that. But now that I've had the experience of doing it and my professors say, okay, here's your quiz or here's your final exam or whatever it is, this is an open resource. And then you just see that the questions are more challenging and go deeper and all of that. I'm like, wait, I can do this in my classes. So, you know, yes. Am I a little worried that kids are going to Google something and try and just copy it. Yes, of course, there's always that risk. Um, but I've had a lot of kids tell me, you know what, I really like your exams because I feel like I'm learning something while I take them. Mm. And I was like, you know what, that's the exact experience that I have when I take my exams for grad school. So I don't think I would have tried that as a model had I not experienced it as a student first. Yeah. And that's, I, it's, it's a really great thing. You bring so many thoughts out in my head uh, about like, <laughs> just the nature of testing in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And, and I guess you're what, what you just said about your students is exactly what I want my students to say about tests is that I learned by taking the test. And I, I think at my core, I don't feel like my students view tests that way. The ones they take in my class, I think by and large, I view them as look at this as a tool where you're going to get feedback and information and you're going to learn from this experience. Um, I do actually think in AP, my students view it that way more now because of the way we've shifted things and the nature of the questions we ask and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, but I think my younger students don't view it that way. And I, yeah. when I'm giving them a test and they're scattered out around the room and they're, you know, writing things down on, you know, <laughs> and their individual testing, I, I wonder sometimes about the structure that we're asking them to achieve. And I have built in some uh, test corrections um, afterwards. So they are reflecting and looking back and sort of seeing the connections and that sort of stuff. And I think that has helped mm -hmm. them view mm -hmm. these learning as like learning experiences that they draw from, but they're not quite where I want them to be. So yeah, yeah I think it's something to think about in terms of like, why do we do tests? Um, <laughs> and yeah. it's, you know, it, it, I think in a lot of ways, the way we do tests in, at least I can speak for in my school is rooted in the ranking and sorting uh, yeah. history that we gave tests for, whereas I don't really want them to be that. I want them to be these tools of learning. And so the question is, how do you break the mold enough so that the students can view that? So yeah, like more, yeah. I mean, I personally need to reflect more on that. So I think uh, yeah. it's good to hear you like getting experiences where you can <laughs> draw from there. Yeah. And I actually have a colleague in um, social studies who's trying something this year where he gives students more than one grade on their assessments. So he has a content grade and then he also has a skills grade. So this is moving more towards like standards-based grading, mm -hmm. but he tells them, look, these are the skills I'm looking for in this assessment in addition to your content knowledge. And then he'll break them out and give them multiple grades on one assignment. And I'm like, oh, that sounds awesome. So that's something I might want to try in the future too, mm -hmm. that I think gets more at what you were saying, like trying to get them to be more reflective about the work that they're doing on these tests. It's not just, okay, I answered these questions and I'm done. Let me see what grade I get. It's like, well, wait, where, where did I do well here? Where did I not do well here? And maybe we can get them to understand more when there isn't a good grade on a test. Like 
why there's not a good grade. Maybe it's not a content issue. Maybe it's a, a writing issue. Like some of my kids, I know they know this content because they talk to me about it. I, I had a student come in one, one day this year to talk to me about the muscular system. We were doing muscle physiology and, um, you know, talking about like uh, the sarcomere and the all or none responses and, and that kind of thing. And and he came in and we had like an hour long conversation and he had all these great questions. And I was like, wow, he really knows this material. And then test time came and he didn't do well. Mm. And I realized that it was because he doesn't know how to organize his thoughts in writing. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's really a bummer because I know that he knows this material, but I don't have something built into the way I teach my course that recognizes his skill in understanding that material without, you know, penalizing him for the difficulty he has in organizing his thoughts and writing. So I, I looking forward, I want to see if I can figure out a way to, to do that, mm. but it's probably going to take some time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But recognizing it is sort of that first step. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, before we get to questions for me and picks, uh, what are you looking forward to in the years to come in your classroom? What's, what are you looking forward to in the next few years? So, well, in the near term, I'm really excited to go to the AP reading. Mm -hmm. I, I think I'm going to learn a ton by being there. I know what my students do on the AP test. You know, I know the, the kinds of responses uh, that they write for FRQs. I know the kinds of scores they get. I'm really interested to see how that compares to the broader population of AP biology students, because I think that will give me a little bit more insight into the areas where I need to spend more of my time in planning out the course, because working in an environment that I do with my kids, these kids are overachievers. They're going to try so hard to be so good at everything all the time. <laughs> and, you know, it, it makes it a little bit more difficult as a teacher to figure out where the weaknesses are because these kids have become very, very good at sort of hiding their weaknesses. If that makes yeah, any makes sense. A ton of sense. Yeah. So, so I want to see these, these responses from the test this year and, and get a better understanding of the things that students are struggling with. Cause my students may not necessarily admit to me that they're struggling with these things. And sometimes their test scores might not even necessarily indicate it. Cause like I said, they, they're just, they're so good at school that I think sometimes that masks when they're struggling with material. And, and so I think I'm really going to learn a lot from being at the reading from that standpoint. Okay. I'm excited to finish my master's program. I'm going to be done in August. Yep. After I do that, I really would like to try my hand at teaching some college classes, maybe at a community college in the area. I'd love to see how that differs from teaching high school. I want to continue growing the anatomy and physiology program at my school. I started that three years ago and my first class had four kids in it <laughs> and enrollment this next, this coming year is going to be like 18. Oh. So I'm really excited at how much bigger that's getting. And I also want to start incorporating more storytelling into my high school courses. I, I feel like I, I have a good handle now. This is my fourth year teaching AP bio. And I have a good handle on how to deliver instruction in the classroom for the different types of topics, but I don't have those stories or those things that kids can grab onto and get excited about. Mm. And I know, I know those things are there because I get excited about them, but I just haven't figured out how, yet how to really work them into my classes. So that's something that I really want to work on in the future. Yeah. So I got a question for you about the AP. Do you, do you take the FRQs yourself? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you share, do you share your answers with your kids? So I don't like give them the document and be like, here are my answers. But I always talk with them then um, after yeah. the exam. And I said, look, this was, 
this was my response to this question. You know, this was what I thought yeah. immediately upon reading it. Um, so yeah, yeah, we have more of a verbal discussion, but I've never just been like, here's what I wrote. Take a look at it. No. I could try that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I do, I do something similar, but actually what I found this year is I highlighted areas that upon second review that I caught where I struggled with the question mm -hmm. and I, I basically didn't share all aspects of the questions. I specifically only shared the stuff that I thought was a struggle. Oh, okay. Like I, I really, I didn't highlight the parts that I breezed through. Um, I really only highlighted the three or four areas where I was like, like this could go this way or this could go this way. Or in one instance, um, I, I, pr I'm certain that I wouldn't have gotten the points because I, like read the question one way. And I was like, after going back through it, I was like, why did I read it that way? Yeah. Like, that's not the right way. Um, and I sort of shared that with the kids. And I think that was, it's funny. It's like, I, it's the showing them that it, it's okay to make mistakes and like, you're not going to be perfect the first time through things. I think sometimes has a bigger impact on them long-term. Oh, yeah. um, it's not going to have a big impact on them right now, but it's going to have an impact on them like three, four years down the line. But just admit, like we make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And especially with the AP students, I think my students, they treat me so well. They, it's, it's just, they're so respectful and like so wonderful, but they view me in a lot of times as knowing all the answers. And I, I really want them to understand no one has all the answers. Right. Like, that's it's important for them to know that mm -hmm. yeah so yeah for sure um, anyway <laughs> i felt i found i was a total accident that that happened this year but i realized as i was going over it i wasn't talking about the stuff that i thought was easy i was specifically talking about all the stuff that i thought was hard and areas where i made mistakes yeah. so <laughs> this year's frqs were fantastic in my opinion yeah i thought they were really good um and my kids came out of the test going like oh that was so good i feel so good about it and that made me worry because you know <laughs> usually when they say yeah. everything was awesome it was like oh man did you misinterpret everything but um but when i read the questions i was like oh my goodness these are so good like they were just they integrated so many different ideas they, i don't know who wrote them but they were fantastic so yay yeah. for those people my <laughs> Yeah, my, it's funny because I have two very different classes this year, and one is, I would say one is sort of more of my prototypical, and I have very high, fairly high achieving students, and they that's exactly their response. And I have another group of students who str have struggled a lot more, and, you know, for a variety of reasons, um, and their reflection was that they thought that the FRQs, they had a hard time parsing what they thought they that they were all about. Mm -hmm. And, and it wasn't all of them. It was, I, when I was talking to them about like the areas that I saw, there were multiple confusions. They kind of hit pause points where it was like, oh, do they mean this or do they mean that? But yeah, I, I agree with you. I found, I compared to say last year when I went through them, I breezed through them this year. I think there was only a handful of spots where I was like, I could see this being a, a point of contention for my students or where they're going to like, you know, not really know how to interpret it or, oh, there's more than one way to look at it this way. Mm -hmm. Or I wonder if this is confusing, but really I think there was like three or four points like that on the test. But overall, yeah, I felt like if they really developed the skills through the year, they should have done pretty well. Yeah. So, all right. So when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? Okay. So uh, when I am not <laughs> specifically teaching science, um, I also direct the middle school play, <laughs> which is... <laughs> Nuts. Which is nuts, um, but always really, yeah. really entertaining. Um, and I also direct our high school acapella group. So um, I do some extracurricular <laughs> stuff at USP, but outside of school completely, I have two dogs. My husband and I love to take them out for walks and for hikes and things like that. I really enjoy reading for pleasure, uh, though I mostly read nonfiction. And I feel like mm -hmm. maybe I'm, 
I don't know, like missing out a little bit on the fiction side. So maybe this summer I'll try and find a few fiction books to read, to enjoy. Uh, I really like to practice yoga. I'm trying to teach myself to play the piano. And I, it kind of happens in fits and starts where I, I have a few really good weeks and I'm making progress and then I get too busy and I stop. Um, I used to play the flute when I was a kid. And so reading the music's not an issue. It's really just getting my hands to do what they need to. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I like to take dance classes. I really enjoy craft beer. My husband is a home brewer, so we get into mm -hmm. that and do that kind of thing. I'm really excited uh, about going to Kansas City specifically because <laughs> Boulevard is down there and I love Tank 7. Yep. So I'm going to need to find my way over there at some point. Um, and we live yeah. in Amish country. We moved about a year ago. And so we like to go out and just kind of explore and see what little shops and things like that are around. So yeah, those are the things I do with my time. And I also really like to sleep. So <laughs> <laughs> so I, I never turn down an opportunity to take a nap on the weekends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Napping sort of is just something that just happens to me. Like, I, I, my wife describes me as a shark. That's like, I, I always keep moving. I always keep moving. But if I stop moving, I fall asleep. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, if I come home and it's like 4.30 and I sit down on the couch and we eat dinner after five, I, there's a pretty good chance if I sit down at 4.30, I'll be asleep for 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, I know where exactly where Boulevard is. Um, I walked there last year with some people. It's a it's a long walk oh, okay. from the hotel. So, uh, but, uh, you know, Uber or Lyft down there mm -hmm. is not too, too bad. Um, and they also close fairly early. So. Okay. But yeah, uh, I definitely can see that there'll be a trip down there at least once uh, during the week. Uh, awesome. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of other kind of cool, funky places to go out um, in that area. And I think that's one of the best things that happens at the Reed is um, they do a lot of nice PD for us, but there's all, uh, you know, where they'll have times in the evening where there's some PD opportunities for us to learn from people who put some stuff together formally, but even just the informal stuff, going out and having dinner or, you know, having beer or, um, I go for a run every morning and so I run with some different people and you know, those conversations I have on those morning runs were, were great yeah. to just talk about stuff and learning and teaching. And it's, yeah, as I, people, the kids say, is it fun to me? And I go, um, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, the reading is interesting. I don't know that fun's the right word uh, that I would use for it, like grading for eight hours right. a day, um, <laughs> but uh, it definitely is interesting and you do learn a lot. And if you are somebody who wants to reflect on things, um, I definitely think it shaped a lot of my practice this year, having done it last year. So, nice. um, and I don't know how many more years I got because I, you know, my, uh, my, my old, my sons are getting into high school, you know, we're a couple years away from graduation. Now there's going to be some few years in the upcoming years. It's going to be hard for me to get out and do the yeah. read. But uh, I'm going to do it as many years as I can reasonably uh, fit it in. And hopefully I keep getting invited. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy, happy that I got invited again this year. So, All right. So before we get to picks, do you have any questions for me? Yes. So um, like I mentioned before, in terms of things I'm looking forward to in the classroom, I really would like to incorporate more like st storytelling into my classes. And I know that you've mentioned on several previous episodes of Life of the School that you have done some work around adding storylines to your classes. So I'm curious what that process has been like and what you've learned up until this point in, in doing that. Yeah. So uh, my ultimate goal, uh, and again, I teach with Brian Dempsey, so I would say our goal is that we are trying to tell one month sort of stories for AP Biology and within there bring together multiple different themes together. And hopefully by doing that, 
we will, you know, I don't like to use the word coverage, but we will cover all the stuff mm -hmm. by doing it, but we're not doing it in a unit plan. It's kind of ironic that, you know, the, the new course and exam description just came out where they took the AP and they put it into units because um, it's like totally antithetical to the way I've been trying to teach this past year in particular, because I've been breaking up the units, um, yeah. breaking up the textbook, breaking up the the model and saying, let's bring it together. And having you know dove deep into it, they really are actually blending the big ideas in their units. So it's not as rigid as sort of a classic unit structure. But the way I want to do something, um, I can talk a little bit about like the example that I'm right, working on right now. I worked with a group out of UC Berkeley on this idea about beetles in the Sierra Nevadas. And what they found is there are some researchers who've been studying them and been studying their their cold coma recovery and their recovery to like the freeze and thaw cycles in the Sierra Nevadas. And along with that, they've been studying these beetles out in the wild and they've collected all this interesting data about them. And it turns out that there's two different phenotypes and three different genotypes that are associated with them with specifically one particular enzyme. And depending on the variation in this enzyme, they either wake up really fast from being exposed to cold or they wake up really slow or they make a heat, uh, heat shock protein really fast or they, they don't make a heat shock protein really fast. And so what I've been doing is I've been working with the folks at Berkeley and Berkeley has put together this like website that is not quite live, but will be in the fall. Um, and in that website, they've put together the story of the researchers and the questions that they have and then how the different pieces that they've collected all sort of work towards evidence of an evolving population. Hmm. And so I've been working on some labs that we could do using ladybugs as a model organism to model these beetles in the wild. And then at the same time, looking at the data from the journal articles about these beetles behavior in a variety of different stories and tying those to curriculum. So the story we're talking about is the story of these researchers and how they're collecting all this information about these beetles in the wild and how their populations are shifting and different labs that they're running to figure out this information. And then also how they're forward looking and saying, well, how is climate change going to impact that? And I'm pulling together their data sets and their graphs and their research and that sort of thing and then trying to find curriculum connections and then ask questions about those concepts for the students. And so like, I'm like literally right in the middle of doing that right now. I have like two of the six modules that I think I have written out. Um, I'm, I'm, they're, they're drafted out and I've got like all these notes and I've got journal articles and that sort of stuff. So I'm not really worried about having them understand the concepts of ecology or concepts of evolution necessarily to start. But what I'm doing is I'm finding an interesting story Mm -hmm. And then I'm finding the ways to use that to exemplify these concepts. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's just, it's starting from the the story and finding the ways to use that to uncover the concepts okay. as opposed to saying, I, here's a set of concepts we have to cover and how am I going to elegantly cover these concepts? And right. so um, it's really looking at that. You know, I think uh, Cheryl, Cheryl Hollinger corrected me when I was talking about it, that we don't cover concepts because when you cover concepts, they're hidden. You yeah. uncover concepts. And so the story helps you reveal what concepts have to be uncovered in order to flush that story out. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's sort of the idea. And so right now we've got uh, that story. We've got a story about Wabakia 
and how my question is like how do parasites change the behavior of their hosts oh, yeah. um, and we're going to be doing a whole story about wabakia based off of that and then we've got a story about how do people taste different things like how does taste perception different and so it's oh, using yeah. ptc tasting as a goal but we'll also play with some miracle berries and some other things like that and yeah it's just like it's we're wrapping our heads around this this process and then running some labs that run parallel to it and then a series of modules that have students sort of grapple with data and concepts in that way and then again, sort of uncover some concepts as we go. Yeah. Um, and then parallel that again with some homework and some textbook and some vocab and stuff like that so that they'll be getting those core ideas. But hopefully they have a reason to want to know certain definitions because they need to or they want to understand the story better. And that's giving them a big need to know. Yeah. So nice. that was like a mess. That was a mess of an answer because I'm in the middle of it. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's nice. It's nice to hear what it sounds like to be in the middle of it. So, you know, yeah. once I get myself in the middle of it, if I feel like what you described, then I'm probably headed in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, I'm going to plan, I've, I'm planning to share some of the stuff that I create maybe later this summer out to a larger audience to get some feedback on it. And, and so I'm definitely going to be posting those out. Awesome. Um, probably in the next couple of months, probably, hopefully by the end of the summer, after I've gotten a couple of, uh, couple of other sets of eyes on them. And I know that the AP storylining is definitely something that the Illinois group, you know, Jason Crean and uh -huh. Britt Chaperna and those folks out there are definitely working on that stuff as well. Okay. So I think this is an area that lots of people are working on right now. So That's great. Um, I'm, Britt's going to be thrilled that I named her specifically. <laughs> I, I, I text when I text with Britt, uh, Britt and I did PD together a few summers ago. And I t f jokingly tell her every time that uh, in a text that she's in charge of AP storylining, um, <laughs> which she, she vehemently denies. But uh, I, I think I, that's how I try to push it off on her. I'm like, you got to figure this out. So <laughs> I know how to do this. So, uh, but yeah, there are a lot of very good minds working on this. So I'm excited. Great. I'm excited to be in this journey and struggle with other good people. So. Mm -hmm. All right. We have gotten to picks of the episode. Jamie, what is your, uh, it's supposed to be pick, but you've gone picks. What are your I picks? Know, sorry. <laughs> I have a very hard time narrowing anything down to just one thing. Um, okay. So I have two. My first one is One Strange Rock, uh, that National Geographic documentary series, which mm -hmm. I don't think is new, but was new to me because it just appeared on Netflix not that long ago. Um, yep. But I watched the whole thing and I loved it. And I thought that was such a great example of driving, uh, using stories to drive understanding of science. Um, so have you watched it? I have not. This is okay. a new one for me. Um, this, it's awesome. It's, it's mainly about Earth and space, um, but it pulls in so much about just biology and chemistry and physics and how, and how those sort of integrate in environmental science and earth science. They have, I think it's maybe seven different astronauts who they keep talking to about their experiences out in space or just being part of NASA and training to go to space. And they explore just a wide variety of, of different ideas. They talk about air in one episode. They talk about water in another episode. And they just... They, like I said, they start with a really interesting story and then they just build what is essentially like a beautifully produced science lesson that's about an hour long. And like, 
I was, I felt so inspired after I watched it that that was what really made me go, oh my God, I have to start telling more stories in my classes. So I highly recommend that to anyone who hasn't seen it yet. And then my other pick was BioRender, which Lee Ferguson actually just shared out on the Facebook group yesterday, I noticed. It's a fairly new website or a website that's just sort of starting to, to get passed around um, in in biology communities. And it's a, it, it's a free tool. I know there's also a paid version for building your own biological figures or models. So if you don't really like the figures that are available to you in your textbook or in whatever materials you have available to you, you can build your own using this website. I have not gotten to dig around too much in it yet, but I am really excited to get in there and just kind of see what the capabilities are. Yeah, so I actually discovered that uh, last summer um, was the oh. first time I had seen that. Yeah, and I uh, I I wanted to I went back and looked. I, uh, I that was my actually pick in on episode fifty three oh. um, <laughs> last summer. I was like, like when it, no, no, because I it's good because I, I I definitely put it out there and I know a few other people. So I have been playing with it that this year, and there have been a couple of times where it was like. Oh, I have this challenge problem. I want an image. I have the image in my head. This is the image I want to use for my challenge problem in class. And I couldn't find one out there. And I was like, oh, well, I'll just build it. And um, yeah. and I've absolutely used it. Um, I've done it to do lab setups, like to describe a lab setup that I want to use in my classroom yeah. um, for a lab handout. Um, so I used that um, a couple of different times this year. So yeah, it's, it's limited. If you use it free, you can only make like a couple of images. But if you save the image somehow, you can go back and edit the image. Oh. So you may only get like, I think two or three images, but if you save that image in a form or in a folder somewhere, you can mm-hmm. rework it so that it's uh-huh. in a different form. And that's how I've been working around the limitations of the number mm-hmm. of images you can make is that I just make the image I want. I drop it into the file that I want and then it's created. And then if I need to do it, I just delete that image from that file and, and rework it. So yeah. You can't save a million of them. So yeah. All right. Well, my pick came about, um, I was back and forth. I had like four or five that I was thinking about, but then, um, on, on Saturday this weekend, I went out on a real long trail run. It was actually really kind of awesome. The trails are starting to dry out a little bit in spite of all the rain we've had. Um, so it was a little, definitely a little muddy, but, um, they're more dry and I got back and I pulled so many ticks off of me. Um, (laughs) yeah, which is, well, it's fine. I mean, I was spent like, you know, more than an hour in the woods and I live in the woods and I did, and I was like muddy and covered, but I pulled a lot of ticks off of me and it reminded me of an old radio lab story um, Uh about the meat allergy. I don't know if you've ever heard this one. I have. It's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so what I really wanted to do, and I really wished I had a bunch of Eppendorf tubes at home, which I, I thought I had more of them, but I didn't, and alcohol. And I wanted to take all the ticks and put them in alcohol in Eppendorf tubes and then like do a DNA extraction and look for <laughs> genes in the genes in them. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned Wabakia. We, we can definitely do that with Wabakia, but I was also wondering about like, can we test for, you know, Lyme disease? Can we test for other things that are in there? These are mostly dog ticks that were, I was pulling off of me. Um, we have both dog ticks and deer ticks around here uh, i'd say the vast majority of what i pulled off are dog ticks which in and of itself might make me strange that as i pull the ticks off of me i'm classifying them um, but uh, <laughs> but uh i was just thinking about that and it made me think back to the radio lab story about the tick-borne meat allergy and so it's uh, alpha gal is the is the protein re- reaction and so basically there's a mostly lone star tick 
uh, born uh, pathogen that if you get infected with this, you get a very strong allergic reaction to a protein that is found in pork and beef. And I think in, there's other meats as well, but of the meats that we eat predominantly, it's in most of those. So fish and chicken tend to be okay. But there is this protein or molecule, I think it's actually, a, it's a conglomerate. It's, I think it's both a protein and a, it's got a carbohydrate component to it as well. That if you consume this, you get an allergic reaction if you've had this pathogen get in you. So um, really fascinating story, but it was one of those things that I started to think about as I was pulling these various ticks off of me uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this weekend uh, from my run and, and made me wonder all these sort of questions about the the different ideas. And as I said, how do the parasites that we have change our behavior or change our activity? And this is a classic example of you wouldn't think of a meat allergy as change in behavior, but I guarantee you, if you have this meat allergy, you're not eating meat anymore. No. Uh, you're suddenly all of a sudden a vegetarian and it's a parasite that has driven you to vegetarianism. Yeah. Um, so kind of a, a, like a, again, what's the story? What's the interesting story? So yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great pick. I, I really liked that episode. I thought it was super interesting. Yeah. And I re-listened to it again this weekend. So uh, I thought it was worth sharing. So yeah. Well, Jamie, I hope this was good for you. I, you made me think of so many different things. So thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. All right, let me give my show credits. Uh, you can subscribe to Live at the School on your podcast player of choice, uh, Stitcher, the Apple Podcasts. Uh, Google uh, has a podcast player as well. Uh, Patreons can support these episodes by going to patreon.com slash lots. I do release episodes a few days early so that uh, David Kanofke can catch my editing mistakes. Um, that's usually the how, reason I do it, and he does a great job on that. Uh, music for this and every episode are provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. Uh, you can get also get show notes at lifeoftheschool.org as well as on the Patreon page. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You can follow Jamie at Jamie N. Castle. It's not as excited as Castle Pants, but we'll accept <laughs> it as at Jamie N. Castle. Uh, so thanks for everybody, joining me, everybody, and I'll talk to you I thought it was at Castle Pants. Uh, it was. Wrong? And then I was like, well, that doesn't sound super professional. So I changed it. <laughs> That's funny. Like I had set my show notes prep and I, uh, I set my show, show notes prep and I was like, I love your Twitter handle. Oh man. <laughs> Sorry. I might have to change it back. <laughs> no, no, no. You keep it at Jamie and Castle.